What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Amber Benson, a strategy consultant from Seam Ripper and a professor of advertising at SMU in Dallas, Fort Worth. Someone who's worked in the industry, has done the thinking, got paid for the thinking, and now also teaches people to do the thinking. And we're going to talk about that journey and then what it's like to offer up young minds to the industry as the industry currently stands. Because, yeah, it's a bit weird out there right now. Hi, Amber. How are you? Hi, doing well. I guess I should say howdy from Texas. <laughs> you, you should, and I'll say g'day, and then I, <laughs> I'll repeat my embarrassment that I thought you were in Orange County or San Diego or somewhere on the West Coast because I met a bunch of your students earlier this year and a lot of them were from that area. Uh, and you're, you're in Dallas, Fort Worth. We are, and which is, you know, a great place actually to teach advertising because we are not on the coast. Mm. So, you know, we're a little bit separated from kind of the traditional centers of advertising, you know, New York or, or LA, San Francisco area. Yeah. And do you have a chip on your shoulder because of that? No, actually, I think, you know, Dallas is the, a lot of people don't realize this, Dallas is the fifth largest media market. So it's a great place to train advertisers because we have access to not only, you know, large scale media and, and some of the largest like out of home uh, producers, uh, radio is, is huge based here in Dallas. We've got, you know, giant TV stations here that we can send students into to intern and, and participate. But we also have a lot of industry here, uh, yeah. you know, particularly retail, particularly uh, quick service restaurants, things like that. Yep. So um, it, we really are in the middle of an environment that produces advertising and uses advertising. So we have a cool opportunity here to teach students not only about agency life, but about client side advertising as well. Totally, totally. Uh, help me explain Texas to people for the, for the people who aren't in America and don't have the context. And even if you are in America, America is huge. So people don't always have the context. I mean, I've been to Dallas a few times in Austin. I've been to the Texas State Fair, uh, which, was, which was enjoyable. Texas is huge and its economy is bigger than the economies of many countries, right? Yes. Yeah. So if you wanted to go from like one side of Texas to the other, it could take you up to an entire day, eight hour day of driving to do so. So, and you've got um, a couple of different, you know, you have three of the largest, th uh, like four actually of the largest cities in America, in Texas. Dallas is obviously huge as is Houston. And everyone kind of knows about Austin, particularly creatives, because you go down there for South by Southwest. But a lot of people don't realize that like Fort Worth itself, separate from Dallas, is larger than San Francisco. So you've got these giant metropolitan areas. And in the case of Dallas-Fort Worth, these two giant metroplexes that kind of merge together to create this huge urban center. And all of them kind of have their own personalities. And we have, you know, advertising agencies in all of those cities that are kind of unique. Yeah. And there's the, I can't remember the name of it, but there are quite a lot of, is there a technology corridor there? You know, oh, yeah, definitely. Um, down in Austin, you have more of like a traditional startup environment, mm -hmm. I would say. You've got Apple who just decided to move out there, things like that. But up in the Dallas area was the center of telecommunications. So there's a telecom yes. corridor up there. Yes. Um, so you had people like Nortel and, and things like that. Texas Instruments is based in Dallas. 
huge, you know, contributor to digital media. I, I actually teach the introduction to digital advertising, digital media at, at SMU. And I teach them about Jack Kilby, who was the inventor of the microchip, who invented the microchip just literally down the road from the campus at Texas Instruments one summer. Yeah. So. Yeah, it is amazing. Like, so I've, I'm fortunate enough to travel a little bit. And when I've been into, into well, when I travel, generally speaking, I'll find myself researching the city I'm going to. Sometimes it's in the car after I've arrived, which is embarrasses me intellectually. But I know no one's watching. Um, and I'll read all the Wikipedia pages and jump on the maps, like Google Maps. I'm like, holy crap! Dallas is first of all big population. It's very flat and spread out, which makes it hard. Yes. For me to- to wrap my emotional hands around. And then you're like, oh my gosh, all this, all these huge companies are housed here. There's a lot of old money there as well. Mm-hmm. Like what's been your experience as someone who lives a life of the mind, who is interested in creati- creativity and a creative life? What's been your experience of living in that environment? You know, I think it's interesting because there's a perception that Dallas particularly, like when people think about creativity in Texas, it's almost always centered in Austin because that's where music scene is. That's where we kind of, you know, there's the whole keep Austin weird philosophy. And, and people kind of think of Dallas as sort of this like nondescript, if, if people have any conception, like cultural conception of Dallas, it's, it's a very traditional one that, you know, they got from watching, you know, the show Dallas when they were younger kind of oil men and cattle ranchers and things like that. But really Dallas is an extremely, this whole area is an extremely diverse area and it's wonderfully rich in terms of the arts. So a lot of people don't know Dallas has one of the only corridors that has like five contiguous Pritzker prize winning architectural buildings in a row. Like we have symphony and theater and, you know, all sorts of music that comes through. And the cool thing about teaching at SMU, teaching advertising at SMU specifically, is our advertising department is one of the only fully endowed departments of advertising in the United States. It was a bequest of uh, Lanier Timmerlin, who started Timmerlin McLean Advertising in Dallas, kind of a legendary Dallas. There's two legendary Dallas admin, Stan Richards and Lanier Timmerlin. And he endowed this, and um, because of it, because of the the relationship we have to the Timberlands, we were endowed in the School of the Arts. So it's kind of interesting because we get to teach advertising not in the School of Business or even in the School of Communication, but we teach advertising in the School of the Arts. So you know, when we go to faculty meetings, it's with museum directors and costume set designers and dancers and studio artists. I think it's a great way to teach advertising. It reminds us that at, at its heart, it's creative. Mm-hmm. Is it difficult to live a creative life in, in Dallas? I don't think so. I mean, I think you've got to find your, there, there's a lot going on. You may have to dig a little more for it. You know, I think if people come into town uh, they may think it's just all like shopping malls and chain restaurants, <laughs> but but there's a there's a vibrant arts community here. It's a great place. Yeah, and, and aren't there communities nearby that are like artist havens? It's just pe- people move there. Maybe they were hippies. I don't know, but uh, move there. <laughs> they, they just do art all the time. Uh, like, aren't there some quite well known artists? Uh, well, you got you got places like out in um, West Texas. There's a town called Marfa. 
mm-hmm. that is kind of well known for eclectic artists and kind of unique installations and things like that. So, you know, the old tagline for Texas used to be Texas, it's like a whole other country. Yep. And um, that's, that's really true. Not only is it different than other states, but um, it's unique in that there are a lot of different places within the state. You get a whole different perspective depending on where you are. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, I love to nerd out about maps. You know, there's a subreddit about weird maps that I love, like population size and things like this. So, I, look, I'll give you one last question about Dallas. And this is really just to give people context because people do exoticize Texas and Dallas and the, and the South, uh, whether or not they're in America or not. It's just, it comes through television. And often the only times we hear about different parts of the US, I find, at least through like mainstream media is is when it's connected to some kind of politics, which is a shame because I get around and have really nuanced, interesting conversations in most most places, not all places, but most. Uh, yet I don't feel that the nuance of those conversations gets covered at, an, at a national level. It feels quite factional and difficult, more difficult than it needs to be when you actually go out and meet people. What what's the population of Dallas Fort Worth? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> like it's big. It's big. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Giant. I mean, it's, it's got to be 20. one of the top 10 cities in the United States. It's huge. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we are going to, because you prepare people who are going to pay, paid to think for a living. Is, is there anything about the creative life and creative mind that you do think is specific to Dallas? Uh, and context is like Australians in general, it's a stereotype, quite cheeky, quite provocative, a lot of brinkmanship, a lot of like one-upmanship and one-downmanship. One and it does produce people like David Droger, not to say like that, that's a, it's a very simplistic this plus that, therefore David Droger. But we, we kind of grow up in a system where we don't take a lot of stuff seriously. And I think that has a shadow side. But we are cheeky and we struggle with that when we move. When you think about the creative minds that you've lived around, that you've trained, can you put your finger on anything that's particular to the creative mind in Dallas or Texas? Well, I think um, I can speak to this directly because, you know, I grew up here in Texas, went to school in Texas, and then ended up moving to the East Coast and working in the Philadelphia area for a while as a Texan. And one of the things I think, one is that you never lose your real sense of there is a connection to real people. You know, the thing when I said about not, not working on either coast, like we may have a little bit of a bubble here in Texas, but if anything, it skews more toward the reality of how real people live and work. You know, we live in, you know, cities that aren't completely concrete and we live in suburbia and we, you know, we go to Walmart and we've been in one lately, you know, and I think that that gives us a great perspective that as an advertiser, as a strategist, that kind of roots you and grounds you in knowing that like um, New York and LA and San Francisco, those are, those are bubbles in themselves. And the majority of people that you produce advertising for don't live there. And so I think one of the advantages of training and growing up, but even getting training in a place like Dallas is that you get a sense for what real people do. And then I can speak as a Southerner, you know, Texans are kind of known as being brash and bold and um, probably a lot like Australians, actually. We probably have some of the same, uh, our mouths will get us in trouble sometimes, but um, we also get underestimated which 
we learn how to use to our advantage, right? So I felt this way all the time, walking into meetings in Philadelphia or New York, and I'd show up and, you know, I kind of look like Dallas Barbie a little bit. And uh, I think people would underestimate what I was capable of or, or what was going to come out of my mouth. And um, I always use that to my advantage to be able to surprise people. But, um, you know, I've, I had several situations where I was working on behalf of clients and we'd, you know, go up to New York for interagency meetings or something like that. And this happened when I worked at a Philadelphia agency and when I worked at agencies here in Dallas. But there is a perception of what the average American and particularly the Southern American is that is just not always accurate. I was always kind of honored and proud to represent kind of real people in those conversations, you know, people who live, didn't live on the island of Manhattan kind of thing. So uh, you gave me a gift. What's a real person, Amber? <laughs> oh, don't ask me that. I just meant, I meant someone who's not, you know, completely, I think one of the biggest issues we have in advertising, I'll put myself in there, is we are almost like a completely self-referential environment we can get stuck in a world where all we do is talk to other advertisers about advertising <laughs> and about the very unique problems of our industry. And, um, and we lose sight of the fact that, you know, and I tell my students this all the time. It's like, you've got to remember that a, a brand manager thinks about their, or, or an ad executive thinks about the brand they're assigned to, you know, for 95% of their day the consumer thinks about it for about 1% of their day. And so you kind of have to remember to keep that perspective that your brand, what you're thinking about is never as, is never as interesting to your consumer probably as it is to you mm-hmm. and, and put it into perspective. So you teach at a private college. Are your students real people? Um, that's, a, that's a great question. I mean, I think one of the challenges that, I have. Um, SMU is a, a private university. It's one of the most beautiful campuses on America. That's just a fact. <laughs> you know, we're ranked. That's no one's opinion. We're actually on some lists somewhere. And uh, the majority of our student body, I think, would be classified as affluent. And that comes with its own challenges. You know, one of the things that, uh, and not because they're not real people, not because they're not capable of it. Some of them just haven't had any exposure to much of a life or a lifestyle outside of the one that they grew up in. And that's not their fault. They're, you know, they come to us when they're 18. They just haven't maybe had as many experiences with different types of people, people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, people from different races, different professions, uh, different classes, all that kind of stuff. And so one of the things I really focus on in my classes, the importance of empathy as the foundation for good strategy and the importance of really experiencing and getting out of your world and into somebody else's, not reading about it online, but really having a lived experience with, Mm -hmm. you know, with your consumer, with the person that you are supposed to be representing because in many ways, strategy or even creative work in advertising, you're being a proxy voice for somebody. Mm-hmm. So if you don't understand their lived experience, you're going to have a really hard time having a voice that one is authentic and two that resonates in any meaningful way. So if 
because SMU is a is it a religious university or it's a university that comes from a religious tradition, right? It comes from a religious tradition, so it's still affiliated with the United Methodist Church. Yep. But yeah. but it's it's a you know it's a Division One research university. It's not our kids don't go to chapel every day or anything like that. Yeah. No, I'm I'm working my way to two cheeky questions, and you know that you know <laughs> that that's what's going to happen because I heard that you have an Australian in your class. <laughs> there are going to be kids who go to a private university who have grown up inside a religion and ge- like geographically inside a gated community. Mm-hmm. W- would you say that a, a visit or a stint in New York might actually be to the island of Manhattan, might actually be a way to become a real person or to understand real people? Uh, I think that <laughs> depends. I think that depends on how you do that, right? <laughs> Where you go on that island <laughs> might matter. Yeah. So I do think any sort of exposure to different neighborhoods, different cultures, different people, different ways of living is beneficial. Like to me, education is not just what you learn in class. Mm-hmm. I want them to get out of the classroom and into the world and into a world that they haven't experienced. I have this kind of famous assignment that I do in my large digital class called the Digital Discovery Journal. And it's based on Daniel Pink's book, A Whole New Mind. A Whole New Mind talks about what are the skills that only humans can do? Like, come the revolution, come the, when the robots take over. What are going to be the things that only humans have the capacity to do or that we can do better than any sort of technology? So it's I know the like, answer. I know the answer. It's called account planning. It's called account right? planning. Exactly. I'm kidding. Keep going. Exactly. No, but, but it's things like um, empathy and storytelling and design and meaning and play. And one of the things I have them do is I, I have them go volunteer with a marginalized group of people very specifically, because, you know, it's like, I'm happy if you want to volunteer with animals, but what I really want you to do is volunteer with some people who are suffering, have experienced some pain, have experienced something uh, real. And I want you to encounter that uncomfortable feeling you get when you really are face to face with your own privilege. Mm -hmm. Is there a character from a religious text that represents that journey that you just described? A character from a religious text that represents... That's a great question. Someone who's... An eye of all people should be able... I know. That's what I I thought was... I thought that was the deal. I thought that was a deal. Have a think about that. Well, I mean, I'm I'm not going to... I don't want to, this is not like the throwaway answer to always say like, well, Jesus. But, um, you know, in many levels, like, I think one of the reasons why I think that just even the character and the person of, of Jesus Christ is, is so attractive and magnetic is because that was kind of his MO on earth was to seek out the, the oppressed, the suffering, the marginalized and to dignify them in some way, either by healing them or validating them, or in the case of women, over and over again, just acknowledging them, right? And I think that that is a model, you know, obviously that I use personally, but advertising and marketing, and and I'm not going to try to, you know, make it more than it is, but at its heart, it's connecting people who need something or, or want something with with things that fulfill those desires or needs. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. Now, 
manipulating or manufacturing those desires and needs, we could have a conversation about that. But, but that, that meeting of you've got something you want and I have something that you need, the facilitation of that, that's the best of what we do. Okay. Right? Yeah. I, I got to say, I think about this a few times a month. I think it would be so difficult being a teacher in a college right now for a few reasons. One is, especially in private colleges, I, I, I do happen to know some, some professors through kids and they're like, like people are basically buying their way to a degree and you'd really have to try hard to not pass and not to get out because we want you to get out. And it feels very facile in some respects. The second part that would be really difficult is that whole ratemyprofessor.com thing, like the ability for you just to have a bad interaction with a teacher, you don't gel and you can just put it on the internet. Like, do you feel a sense of power as a teacher? Are you, do you feel meek? Do you feel like judged and wary of your students? Um, I don't, but I think that might be because I come from industry, right? So I feel like I have a different maybe perspective on that interaction than someone who maybe came up trained as an academic or a researcher or something like that. I kind of treat my classrooms a little bit like business. So I come with a certain level of expectation for how that interaction is going to go and make my, I make those expectations clear to my class. And then we have fun. You know, I do joke around with them because in recent years, I've felt the necessity to add conversations and discussions in my classroom about what's going on in our world, because I feel like as the media landscape has shifted, as the political landscape has shifted, I think we would be remiss, specifically teaching like digital media to one, ignore the reality of what's going on, say on Facebook or the Cambridge, you know, I couldn't just ignore Cambridge Analytica Mm -hmm. or anything like that. have to talk about that. And that can be a little bit of a um, sticky wicket. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Can I borrow that phrase from the English? Yeah. Um, Do you know what a wicket is? You know, there are two ways to use it. What is it? Are they, isn't it? Is it croquet? Do the croquet or cricket? It's one of those, it, right? <laughs> it's it's cricket, and oh gosh, I hope this is great. I played it for like ten years, but uh, the wicket is the green thing that the batsmen run up and down. But then there are wickets, which are the three stumps in a ground. I, I gosh, I hope that's correct because it's been a while since <laughs> I've watched it. Um, what what do you think of the phrase "If you can, you do; if you can't, you teach"? Oh, that's, that has been said by someone who obviously did not have to teach. <laughs> <Booyakasha. Because> teaching, <laughs> teaching is so difficult. And one of the things I love about teaching is that it forces me to verbalize and organize the things I do know, possibly the things that I know intuitively. It forces me to explain them well. And, and that's one of the biggest you know, the hardest things about teaching strategy specifically is like for some of us, strategy is a very natural and intuitive way of thinking that we have cultivated over a lifetime and then marry that with experiences and, you know, with clients and brands and over time. And it's just become second nature to us, but to have to back out of that and explain to someone how you came to that insight or how you got from A to Z in five minutes flat, that's challenging. And so, and then to be able to say that in a way 
that someone else cannot only understand it, but then replicate it. Yeah. That, that, that's the difficulty of teaching. <laughs> I, I agree. I think teaching makes you better at what you do. I heard that phrase a very long time ago. I just looked it up as you were talking as well. And this is probably a paraphrase of a paraphrase and it could be misattributed, but the original quote, and it might not be original because I'm looking at Cora, it says it's from George Bernard Shaw and it's from his Maxims from Revolutionists. And it says, he who can does, he who cannot teaches. And, then, and, and I... I absorbed that as a kid. And the thing that kind of got me through it is seeing martial arts and very proficient martial artists training. And when you're training and you don't have money, teaching is a way to either get free training or discounted training. And then I did a little bit of teaching of the martial arts when I was young. And I'm like, oh, how do I explain this concept? And in explaining it, I was then able to practice it better. Uh, to the point where I internalized it in a in a significant way, and when I was managing strategists, I would encourage them to do one of three things at least once a quarter because you know you can be pretty busy, and those three things are write, teach, or talk yes. choose one choose one of those because they 're all basically teaching, and you have to right. think about what you care about, have an opinion on it, express it, and in expressing it you 're going to have to improve it then you 're going to get feedback about it, and then you 're in this beautiful virtuous cycle. But it is one of those phrases that I, I wish it didn't exist. Well, and I would, I would probably push back on him and say, sometimes the only way you teach is to do, right? Particularly, and I think this is true in strategy. Ooh. We've had some conversations about this, which is one of the hardest things about teaching strategy in the context of a, you know, a U.S. university is that really, in my opinion, strategy has more in common with what we would call a vocation or a trade than it does with an academic discipline. Although we borrow from academic disciplines and we lean on it, to me, the best way to learn strategy is to be apprenticed to it. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Uh, the other thing is is that people can bemoan the education system and they, the people who do bemoan it, which is many people, might do well to think of teachers as doers and teaching as doing because you know what, and this is a shout out to Europe because I'm just going to drop a casual classic reference here despite never having studied them. People like Socrates and Plato were teachers, were they not? Right, And they totally. changed entire intellectual traditions around the world. You know, and that's one of the things I tell my students. It's very common for students to, you know, have two majors now. That's kind of a common thing. And so they'll ask me, well, what, what would you put with advertising? And I typically just say, like, any liberal art, any liberal art, yeah. like history, sociology, anthropology, even social sciences, psychology, throw in economics if, you, if you've got the aptitude for it. You know, yeah, it, yeah, it's yeah. like get exposure to larger ideas you know, in some ways, advertising has become, advertising education has become a practitioner's degree. You know, there's a very practical side of what we teach in an advertising program. And the great thing about that is that you leave a program like ours with a marketable skill set that you can go and take your book and go get a job or become an account manager or a digital producer. But I think it's critical that you also just know how to be a critical thinker. Yeah, yeah. But my main nervousness around anyone teaching advertising, because honestly, in Australia, I didn't really work with people who studied advertising. They might. Do oh, neither, a, neither did I. Yeah, they, they might do. Did I. No, they might do portfolio school, but they didn't study, go to university for multiple years to study advertising. My main nervousness is that 
there isn't enough intellectual pressure on the individual studying advertising for three to four years that what they're trying to do is start to engage in some bizarre transaction where they go to class, they get a portfolio, they go for internships, they get a job. And I'm like, yeah, have you learned how to think just a little bit? And I know that most people will, but I'm just anxious that they're not. Yeah. And that's kind of like a personal thing that I'm trying to do with my classes and my tiny corner of the world is, is to introduce some of that, introduce some of that critical thinking. Because So like SMU, we have three different tracks for students. You go into the creative track, you go into what we call strategic brand management, which is more probably a traditional account planning, uh, brand management kind of role, or you have a digital track, um, which I can argue that you know, its days are probably numbered as, as we start to, you know, admit that it's all digital and it's all not digital at the same time. But, you know, the students that go through the creative track, they get a very, very immersive experience in just that, in, in both the skill set that takes to create a book, but also the, the larger things like concepting and sketching and storytelling and how do you curate your curiosity? How do you develop creativity. And and my colleagues in the creative track have been very successful in creating students that just get it and then get employed because they produce great work. And I'm trying to replicate that in our account planning and, and our digital tracks is that same level of engagement with the craft. Mm -hmm. When, when you say they get it, what does that mean? What are they getting? They're, they're learning how to, you know, kind of push through that first level of work. You know, we all had that when we were younger, when the moment we came to an idea, we were like, that's awesome. That's great. That's it. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go to happy hour. Right. And so the cool thing about our program is it's a cohort program. So they come into the program together and then they kind of stay together working as they move through the program. And so we're able to kind of see their growth as creatives. Okay as copywriters, as art directors. And then when you talk about critical thinking, how, how do you actually teach critical thinking? You know, I think one of the best ways to do it is through iteration, r- repetition. So one of the things I get to do that I love is that I'm the faculty advisor for the National Student Advertising Competition Team. So that's the American Advertising Federation does a nationwide competition with a real client every year where you get a, you get a challenge, you get a case study and you've got to do an entire campaign. You've got to do the whole thing from research to media planning, to the creative, all the way up to a competitive pitch. And it's a great experience. I love that experience because you get to work the students through the frustration of not having the right idea, you know, (laughs) and they're so I find that uh, a lot of students these days, they are so ready. Um, they've been trained to just get things done. Like mm. life is just a checklist of things that I need to get done in order to get a grade, in order to finish, in order to graduate. And part of the way that I teach critical thinking is just not allowing them to settle for the first idea, something that works, just to continue to push back on them. You know, one of the things that we've, we've noticed that has been difficult to teach, particularly to this younger generation, when I say younger, the kids in college these days, students in college these days are, you know, Gen Z, I guess is what people call them. 
one of the hardest things to do is to teach them how to critique. They are very sensitive, and this is probably because of they've been sort of discipled, if you will, by social media. Mm-hmm. Everything that they have in life, all of their image, everything they do is kind of up for comment and, and presented to their peers all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And so they, they live in a very deferential world in many ways. They don't want to give negative comments because they don't want it coming back to them. And so... Uh, you don't think it's a matter of, of, of respect because we're five decades into the self-esteem movement, which I think is really interesting, but also because I read research problematic. Yes. Uh, you think it's deference and fear of conflict versus, no, we should respect our peers. I mean, on some level, I think it, it's respect, but I, I find them to be more fear-driven. Like, I don't want to give a critique because I don't want this critique coming back to me. Yeah. Or, or I don't want the person critiquing me to think. They, they really struggle with being able to separate. This is a personal critique and this is a professional critique. Yeah. Which, I mean... Hello, even adults. I mean, we've worked in agencies. There yeah. are plenty of adults that have a hard time separating those things. Well, I don't, but, think, you need, I don't think you need to work in an agency to realize that. Because right. <laughs> some, sometimes we have relationships with people outside of the industry and sometimes we, they're romantic relationships, for example, or we're just related to people. And we learn that there's a difference between criticizing the behavior, the person, and the idea. Right. Right. So one tool that I use to teach students is Edward de Bono's Six Thinking Hats. Oh, we're talking Ed? Oh, I love yeah. it. A little bit of Edward so, de Bono because he spent a bit of time in Australia. Like, he's not Australian, yeah. but the Six Thinking Hats is one of those things that appears in business language and people don't even know where it comes from. Right, right. Well, it's funny because I decided that if I was going to teach this, I needed to have the Six Thinking Hats. Mm-hmm. So I went on Amazon and bought like six colored satin top hats mm-hmm. that like sit in my office so I can bring them in. And awesome. that, that really confused the Amazon recommendation engine for a while. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Like you, you can't bring up Edward Duono or the six thinking hats without quickly breaking it down for people who are unfamiliar with either Edward Duono or this particular book out of a hundred or so books that he's written. Yeah, so I hope I can do it justice. So Mm -hmm. Edward de Bono, great thinker about um, creativity and really kind of made his mark in the world, I guess, with the book Lateral Thinking, Mm -hmm. which really described what is the process of how we create strategic insight, really. What is going on in our brains when we do that? And um, one of my favorite things from that book is that a lot of times when we come up with a great idea, we'll laugh when like we get to a strategic insight, when we come upon it, we'll like chuckle. And that's because comedy is in a way, lateral thinking, strategic insight. And that's why I think people with good sense of humor are often the best strategists. Oh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say the, the, naturally. The, I, I thought you were going to say the people with the best sense of humor are the saddest people. <laughs> no. Oh, I was, I was like, yeah. Well, that, that might be true. But we're also, we're also good thinkers. When you say strategic insight, is that different to the word insight by itself? Well, I, I tell my students, it's like the way your brain works is your brain is combinatorial, right? So the more inputs that you get, the more likely you are 
to get to an insight because really what your brain's doing, it's like that old game memory. I don't know if you guys had that in Australia, like kids game. You've got all these images on the back of these cards and they're all flipped over. And the game is to flip over two until they match. And can you remember where they are? Mm -hmm. That's what your brain does when you start to try to solve a problem, Mm -hmm. right? And so get as many input, get as many cards on the table, let your brain work. But strategic insight is that moment when the two right cards flip over together. And I think maybe it's different than how we think about insight because strategic insight comes with a level of clarity, like a galvanizing clarity that allows you to move forward. And I think this is where that, you know, the word insights has become cheapened in our industry quite a bit. Sure. But to me, when I think about like the, the role that a strategist plays in business, it's to take those things, take all those cards, flip two over and see something that you haven't seen before mm-hmm. that like what Roger Martin would say, once you see it, everything else looks pretty dumb. Yeah. Right. And, I, and, what, and what I'm hearing, because I just, I just struggle with the word strategic as an adjective in front of other business jargon, but I hear what you're saying specifically in that that kind of insight is something that a business must take action on. It's about yes. action and the business moving on. So I totally get that. Um, just We've got to do the six thinking hats. What are they quickly? Right. So um, I hope I can do this. So the six thinking hats. So you have the, these are the hats represent different ways, different lenses, I would say, of evaluating concepts, issues, solutions on the table. So the white hat is neutral, it's objective, it's facts, it's data. What do we have? What do we know for sure here? The black hat is the introduction of like risk, a little bit of the devil's advocate, but kind of the questioning what could go wrong here. The the red hat, I love teaching students about the red hat, particularly in the context of advertising, because it's just pure emotion. It doesn't have to have reason. It, it's, the red hat is the art director that comes in the room and says, ugh, I hate that color, mm-hmm. right? And, and it doesn't have to be anything, but you need to get it out because there is some value in that intuition that we have in our bodies and in our emotions. Yep. The yellow hat is kind of the, the opposite of the black hat, where the black hat says what could go wrong. The yellow hat says, yeah, but what could go right? It's the positivity. Green hat is my favorite hat because it's the generative hat. It's the hat that looks for opportunities. It's the yes and hat mm-hmm. in, in the language of improv. You know, it's the building hat. And then finally, the blue hat is kind of the meta hat. It's the hat that thinks about the way, the process we're using to think as a group. And so as as they all, as you learn how to use those different hats, it's given our students a vocabulary to use with each other. And I can use it with them. If I'm having a hard time getting critique out of them, I can be like, all right, red hats, guys, just Mm -hmm. give me your gut instinct or no black hats. You know, we had a, the class we had last year, we had a student who I love her. She's got a great critical analytical mind. But like, if she doesn't turn it off, she will black hat every idea to death. <laughs> mm-hmm. But because we had that as a, as a construct collectively to use, I could be like, hey, drop the black hat. Yep. We, just, we just need positivity right now, or we just need more ideas right now. Yeah. So it's an interesting perspective 
shifting model for the brain and it gives names to things that we do while also allowing them to happen within a set of rules and expectations. So you're not just ripping into each other, just coming up with stuff. Right. And, 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 and through that, there's due diligence. And I, I've got to say, like, based on like, like race relations around the world, I wish the black hat wasn't about negativity. Et, et I agree. <laughs> uh, I'm, I find that problematic, even though I also know that the sky is dark and caves are dark and maybe that's where that really comes from. But I, no, I, I, I struggle that. with I that. Teach- I, I hear you because I teach students about propaganda as well. And I teach um, kind of a whole separate concept, normally not in the same lecture as the, the six thinking hats, but I introduced the concept that advertising is propaganda mm-hmm. and we have to recognize it as such and recognize the risks that come with the fact that we, we peddle in propaganda. Now it's what's referred to as white propaganda. Like we're all in on the, we're all in on the joke, right? The jig is up you know I'm trying to sell you something and you're partaking this commercial knowing that that's my motive. But mm-hmm. the same thing applies there. You know, the three levels of propaganda are white, gray, and black propaganda. And I always hate teaching that lecture. I always have to preface it with the same kind of statement because I'm like, mm-hmm. ugh, we need better words for these things. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. Like, I understand when some people talk about not wanting to be politically incorrect and wanting to be expressive and honest. But to me, that's not in conflict with the idea of being compassionate and trying to understand history. Not uh, at all. And, and then some of these thinking models are useful and they're like, yeah, I, I don't know. There, there is context. Like there is context. You don't just get to make this stuff up and hold on to it forever and be a purist about it because people have feelings and some bad stuff's happened to people. So I, I, I struggle really? with that one, but Edward de Bono is an amazing thinker. If people haven't come across him before, please do. I talk about him in my talks. Uh, yeah. Um, do you feel guilty about preparing people to think for a living and then sending them into the current state of the advertising industry? I don't know that I feel guilty. It does give me pause. One of the things that as an advertising educator that I'm really concerned about, and you see this occasionally, particularly in like strategy planner, Twitter world, is we have some real negativity about our own industry, a real contempt, it seems, for what we do as a profession. And that's, that's dangerous, I think. And it's also very discouraging for students who are on the outside looking in and looking up to a lot of us to hear us talk about our own chosen profession as something that we don't even respect. Yeah. And, and, and I think that that's part of what we want to do, and particularly our kind of remit at SMU at the Timmerland Institute, was part of the reason Linhair Timberland started the Institute was to elevate the profession of advertising through research, but also through better education. And we've kind of started developing a concept we call principled advertising. And Mm -hmm. believe me, the faculty has definitely had conversations about, is that the right word or whatever, but we're trying to put some definitions around what does an advertising industry look like that we can respect and that other people can respect. You know, I think last time I saw the advertising was like below politicians as the least respected profession Mm -hmm. in the United States. And you're like, yowza, like how can we change that? Yeah. My sense, I've sat on this hunch, I've probably blurted out some stuff that doesn't make sense over the years. Well, a lot of stuff, but particularly with this particular topic. 
my sense is that advertising in the US is way more connected to propaganda and politics and manipulation of the masses in a negative way than it's perceived to be in other countries where it leans, maybe it's lying to itself, but it leans towards a creative industry where they attract people who are often very intelligent and very expressive and they find the industry and they're like, I can express myself through that and not in a way where I'm just just trying to manipulate someone to buy something they really don't need that's really bad for the planet. I, I just think it's a little bit different here in the same way that like a teacher can be more respected and better paid in say Scandinavia compared to mm-hmm. the US. And I, like I've sat on the thought with those many words for like five years because I feel awkward and embarrassed because I'm a guest in this country. Like I feel weird thinking that and feeling it, but it, I feel it. D- does that make any sense? Yeah. And I agree. I mean, I think we definitely feel that too. I'm not sure what exactly is driving that. It might be our, you know, deep rooted puritanical tendencies, (laughs) you know, that, that force us to make advertising useful. You know, we had a great conversation the other day in, in a faculty meeting, particularly with some of my quote unquote creative colleagues about, you know, I think in the definition I had referred to advertising as commercial art and they like, you know, you could just see them like bristle, like they had to like shake it out of their body when I said that. Why? Um, because for some reason that feels like it cheapened their, their work product for some reason. Because and, they com- commercial? Yeah, I think so. And I think that's something that the American advertising industry really holds intention and maybe doesn't hold that well is that something that's purpose is to sell that Uh, that somehow taints the creative work it does it does i've written like five pages on the phrase that you just mentioned i'm like oh my god i just got triggered and i don't (laughs) want to be the guy who's like i just wrote five pages on that but here i am what we do is art art to me is revealing profound truth we do do it in the service of business and in capitalism because that's the society that we happen to inhabit right now. But it's, it's art right. and, and it has a commercial context. Commercial art, maybe, maybe. I'm not sure what that even, like, like it's one of those tropes that we use over time and I'm like, I get it. I get it mostly as a way for the advertising industry to tell business people that it's like, it's art, but it's not really art. Like it's about making money. But like if you're in it, I think it's more useful to think of it as art, but then you have to differentiate between art for art's sake and art that does serve a purpose. Yes. And I think, you know, it's funny because uh, it's kind of a known tension between the students know that if Professor Benson comes in and looks at your ad versus if, you know, Professor Allen, who's a creative professor, comes in and looks at your ad, the feedback's going to be very, very different, right? So we have like a portfolio night every year where the creative track students show their work. It's excellent work. You know, it's been awarded Addies and and Losers Archive and all that kind of stuff. They're great ads. But when I walk in, I'm trying to reverse engineer the brief because I'm a strategist. (laughs) And the other professors are just looking for that compelling, emotional, evocative response. And that is kind of what we're trying to teach students is like, you can create a poster that's beautiful and artistic and exhibits excellence in the craft of visual communication. 
and someone like me will still walk into the room. And normally someone like me, quote, means the business owner can walk into the room and say, it doesn't meet my need. It doesn't serve my purpose. You know, I, I always like to quote to the students, David Ogilvie as well, if it doesn't sell, it's not creative, <laughs> right? Yeah, and, and, so, and Edward Bernard says, like, if it's not useful, it's not an idea. It's not creative. Right. But, like, I, I, is this presumptuous for me to say that I, I don't think that you ignore how it makes you feel. You're just looking for the echo from where it came so that there are at least two things that are connected. Yeah, yeah, right? because, I mean, you know, that's what I tell my students. Like you said, it's not art for art's sake, but, God, the best advertising is art. Yeah, hang on. It's hang, artistic. Slow, yeah. slow down. You just, you just like, in one sentence, that's like someone's lifetime. What, hey, could you repeat what you just said? Yeah, like, it, it's not just art for art's sake, but the best advertising is art. The best advertising is artistic. If we look at the, if we look at the most effect, I don't know if we can say that even. This is, this is where, so I'm fascinated. I'm going to go off on a tangent here for a second. I'm fascinated with advertising that is horrible and yet works. <laughs> yeah. You know, like local car dealership level advertising. <laughs> like that you know has got oh, to be effective. God but just sucks from a, from a level of craft. Yeah. And like, how do you explain that to a student? Right. Totally, to- <laughs> totally, totally, totally. I- I'm reacting cause I'm literally editing this section of the thing I'm writing and I've used some of these phrases. I'm like, hang on what? Cause here's the thing. Art is for art's sake. Yes. <laughs> right. So then when you say art isn't for art's sake, you're saying that art, well, for me, no, I, I guess it's it- like, Advertising it isn't for art's sake. Maybe that's what I'm trying to say. Advertising um, is is art. It, advertising is art, but to your point earlier, it, it's art in service to commerce. Yeah, and, and and I think we and I think there there is a subset of folks who are creating beautiful art. They're creating beautiful films. They're creating beautiful posters. They're not creating great advertising. Because great yes. advertising sells. <laughs> okay. No, I, I, I understand. I mean, slightly provocative. and I th- Sure. I mean, not really. Not really. Uh, but it's because I would prefer for the next three years for people who do strategy work to identify more as artists than as whatever else they're identifying with to overcompensate for the past 10 years. And so I'm, I'm having a bit of fun with the words, but... And these things are kind of dangerous, but I'm like, oh, if you've got a bad creative brief as a creative director, here's the deal. Tell the strategist to be more artistic. Don't tell them to be more businessy or more researchy. You tell them to take a risk in the way they express the brief or write the brief. And my feeling with the right people around them is that it's going to be more useful for the company. And so uh, that's why these words, like they're so on my mind right now. And no, like, and, I, and I totally agree with you. When I teach brief writing, One of the things I say is like a brief is your audience for a brief is to inspire creatives. Like you've got to deliver something in that brief that you need to cover off on whatever the client wants, but that's kind of neither here nor there. Cause hopefully in between what the client asks for and inspiring creatives, you've uncovered something yeah. That gets you up in the morning, right? You've, in, oh, you've uncovered some sort of galvanizing insight yes. that's going to be inspiring to them. And then your job is to 
I love the fact that your book is called Strategy is Your Words because it is. Strategy is just clear thinking and good writing. That's what that is. And, and that's going to inspire a creative. If you can bring that tension, you know, if you can, yeah, yeah. if you can illuminate the, you know, and I get very into my work, like I'm an ethnographic researcher by training. And so I love to get fully immersed in the consumer's experience and to find those things that are just like those deep truths that people you know, people don't talk about at parties, like the thing under the thing that no one's willing to say. Mm-hmm. And then you, when you, you find that, you, you get you just excited. gave me, You just yeah. gave me one. You just gave me one. You gave me a truth behind the truth behind the truth right there. And I think that's one of the most honest and most difficult things for people who do what we do to realize. And it involved the phrase, it's neither here nor there. What was that sentence again? I don't know what I said. <laughs> you were talking about briefs and thinking and client briefs, etc. And you said it's neither here nor there. And to me, that's like a brutal truth. The best work I've seen has come from a couple of conversations and a phrase or a sentence or a word. And yet, oh, yeah. there you are spending all your time trying to put a hundred slide deck together. And oh. when that happens, the words are sloppy. It doesn't, the the idea doesn't hinge on a word or a phrase or a sentence. It hinges on a hundred slides. And as the slides grow, the idea disappears. It retreats. Right. Perfect example of that. Do you remember the, the Microsoft commercial for the adaptive game console that they have for children with disabilities? It was a Super Bowl ad. I remember about it. I don't remember the thing itself. It's got video clips of the parents talking or whatever. And one of the parents says, because when he plays, he's not different. And I was just like, that, 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 if that was not the brief, yeah. like, shoot me now. Like, because, oh. I, and I live for those, I live for those moments in research when you see things like that and you're just like, I don't need to say anything more about that yep. because I, it's so true. <laughs> I've got you, Amber Benson. You're, you're doing this because you want to see people honor other people. And in that particular phrase and sentence, you're like, okay, that advertising honored that person. And yet also because you've worked for a long time in the industry, let alone taught the industry, you know that that might not have been on a brief and it might've come out of the creative department and you know that that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I always tell my students, ideas are shared. Execution might be owned. Ideas are shared, but you know, I worked a lot in when I was on the agency side. I'm I'm a healthcare marketer. I worked for pharmaceutical drugs, and and my my specialty is actually in stigmatized conditions. So things that come with some level of public judgment or personal shame. So I worked with acne and obesity and mental health and addiction treatment. And I, I still do a lot of work in the opioid crisis and, and addiction treatment. And what I've just learned by sitting with people and listening to them and honoring their truth and dignifying their experience is that nine times out of 10, they will tell you exactly how to sell that product. You know, they will tell you exactly and not in a manipulative way. But like, they'll explain to you the emotion behind a a decision that doesn't seem to make sense. I'll give you an example. I was the lead digital strategist for the launch of Chantix in the United States. Chantix is a, you know, Pfizer 
product for smoking cessation. And when we were in the research, one of the women said, she's like, you know, I started smoking because it made me look cool. Like I was an outsider. I was a rebel. I would stand behind the schoolhouse and smoke. And over time, I'm still standing outside of the schoolhouse. I'm standing outside the office, but it's not cool anymore. And she goes, cigarettes betrayed me. And I was like, <laughs> like I'm behind the glass, you know, just like pounding my fist. Like, did somebody write that down? Because <laughs> it's just like, that's a true emotion. You know, it's, that's a, that's a real, that's a real insight you could do something with. Now, did we do something with it? I'm not so sure, but, but it was there for the taking. And I love to teach because I want, if I can just teach one or two students every year to listen without judgment, to tune their ears to real human truth, and then to get so damn excited about it, you can't wait to run down the hall and tell the creative team. Like, Mm -hmm. then I've done my job, right? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. That's what we're here for. Yeah, and and that's what critical thinking is. It's asking questions more than having answers, and it's listening. Yeah, totally, totally. Mm. And to recognize that what we do can be dignifying if we infuse it with compassion for our consumer and a deep desire to know um, why. Yeah. Yeah. And, and on that, I'm not a hyper-capitalist. I'm not even that materialistic. And I mean, that has a whole spectrum and degrees of things. But like, at some point, everyone's advertising. The peacocking thing, like when men are trying to attract oh, yes. someone, someone they want to partner with, that's advertising. And I don't go to that just to justify anything because I do have a, a moral code. But at the heart of what we're talking about is it, definitely critical thinking. And I think critical thinking is questions. That's more questions than answers. And if you get an answer out of 100 questions that's interesting, that's wonderful. Well, uh, I also and, think and it's definitely listening, to- right? Yeah. And you have to, um, I, we were, I was talking to my students about this the other day, cause in one of my classes, I'm teaching new business development and I gave them each kind of what I would consider sort of like a beleaguered brand or even worse, just like maybe a boring brand, you know, <laughs> a brand that it, on, on the surface, it doesn't seem like there's much to it. Like I gave one of them a brand of like paper napkins, not paper towels, like, mm paper napkins, <laughs> which, you know, millennials don't really use anymore or whatever. And, and I, and I use it as an example, cause I was like, you're going to get a client that you're not that fond of, or it's not naturally a cool client to have. You know, I do a ton of work in business to business. Like nothing's like super sexy in, in that world. Hang but on. Like, I know B2B can be, can be super can sexy. Be. I love it. I'm just saying when you first get it, there's not a ton uh, of just no. the, the marketing clients give up on it. It's no, this is, this is what I'm saying though. So I'm trying to teach my students, how do you connect with things even when you don't naturally connect with it? Yeah. Right. So like, it's easy to connect with Warby Parker because we all have Warby Parker glasses. Awesome. What are you going to do when you get Vanity Fair napkins? Right. <laughs> and so I, I led them sort of using the five whys kind of a modified five whys, I led them through like, so why do people use napkins, right? Well, you use them at events where people get together. Why? Because there's a lot of people and you want to be a little bit nicer than paper towels, but not 
Well, why? Well, because you don't want to have to clean up after everyone. Why? Because being together is what's important, right? Boom. There. You've got something real that you can tie yourself to that motivates you to come in and work on this project that gets you to something deeper than I'm selling napkins. Because I think that's what's missing in a lot of our industry is like we're going to work and we think we're selling napkins when you're like, no, you're selling community, you're selling hospitality. And it's not some sort of like made up brand purpose that you came up with to make yourself feel better. You're actually basing your connection to the brand on something you believe is true. Yeah. And if you, and if you can't do that, get another brand. <laughs> and if you find that every single client that you come up against feels bad to you, then yeah, maybe it's time to go find another agency with another strategy in, in, in developing clients or something. But my guess is that most brands, you can, if you think about it, you can get yourself to something that both motivates you and you feel is a social good that you're producing in the world. Yeah, I hear you. And to end this, what I'm, what, what I'm hearing, and you have to agree with this, is like, because you've used the word real a few times at the start and then at the end, <laughs> you're, 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 you're trying to find some kind of real slash truth through what we do. And as you're talking through this, I've got to tell you, man, like, through advertising, I'm just trying to relate to people. And these these things can be kind of vicarious, but also really important to you as individuals. And if you can do it for a group and they're more successful because of it and you believe in what they're trying to do, and by group, I mean company, uh, and you believe in them and they don't cross your moral code, then it does feel quite rewarding. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people always say like, oh, you sold pharmaceuticals. Like that's evil. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of people who kind of have a hard time with that. And I was like, I never saw it that way. Like, do I understand the concern with drug prices and, and our whole healthcare system needs reform? But for me, I could walk in every day. Unlike, you know, we had, you know, fast food companies on the other side of our agency. Our agency was kind of split between health and wellness and everything else. And we had, you know, people working on a pizza delivery company and I was working on some Balta. Like I could go in every single day and feel like, because I came to work today and helped people make these connections, somebody may have gotten a little relief today. You know, someone might've been able to wake up and actually like made a cup of coffee. And as Gary Goldman said, you know, someone had enough energy to like put the toilet paper back on the toilet paper roll today. <laughs> you know, that, 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 that's what I could do. And And I've always felt that way. While I realized like the industry of pharma is problematic, the people I worked with at those brands and at those companies had nothing but concern, compassion, and and a deep, I I would go so far as to say love for the people that they Mm. were helping. Mm. And and that motivated me. Totally, totally. And look, I think... For anyone listening who's curious about research, there's two ways to listen to the past few minutes. One is to listen to the fact that both of us are rationalizing a huge part of our lives. That's true. We, and we all do that, whatever sure. industry we're in. And the second one is to listen to actual messages that we tell ourselves because we feel these things are true. I'm, that, that's like another five-hour conversation now, but where's the best place for people to find out about you and what you're doing on the internet? Probably following me on Twitter at Amber Benson. 
you kind of get a good combination of everything I am, which is a strategy consultant, an advertising professor, a theology graduate student. <laughs> and oh, uh, oh, you can't yeah. just drop that in. You know, <laughs> you know when you say the, you know when you say theology, I'm gonna I want to talk to you about Alan Watts for a very long time, and I hope you know. Oh my goodness, that gentleman. That, that's a, I do know Alan Watts. That's okay. a little bit out of my realm, but yeah. Okay. We'll talk about that some other time. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me on Sweater tonight. Hey, students of Amber Benson, if you're listening, uh, critical thinking. That's what it's about. Be savage. Get out of those gated communities that three of you grew up in. That's not everyone. I'm being super generalizing there, but like it is a really privileged career. It's an amazing career. If you can hold on to it, the industry itself is up and down. It's like a fucking bronco. It's a bit strange right now. Sometimes doesn't like itself, but at the end of the day, if you're in a capitalistic society, advertising is kind of at the heart of a lot of stuff. Try to do more good than bad. That's what I want to leave those students with because I know at least four and a half of them are going to listen to this, Amber. Right. And I think advertising as a bunking Bronco is a great metaphor for a Texan, <laughs> particularly like- one that teaches with the SMU Mustangs. So yeah. that's great. You just yeah. brought it all back. <laughs> I know. Look, I like to do culturally and geographically specific bizarre metaphors. That's what I'm about. That's my, that's my commercial art. Emma. You nailed it. We'll talk again soon. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Peace.